Anxiety seems to be a growing problem in children. Let's look now at the different ways in which anxiety can present, some of the common anxiety disorders in children, and when to seek help. You're listening to the Early Learning Podcast, brought to you by StoryPark. If you want to get in touch, just send us an email at media at storypark.com. You can also watch this interview on YouTube, which was filmed for our online talk show called Mat Time. You'll find this at youtube.com slash storyparktv. Thanks everyone for joining me on the mat today. I'm Dr. Kayleen Henderson. I'm a child psychiatrist, mother of three and founder of A Dose of Awesomeness. Today we're going to be talking about anxiety because it seems to be a growing issue for our children. And there are probably a number of reasons why this is. One of the reasons I wonder about is whether it relates to the relative lack of freedom that our kids experience these days. I'm sure, like me, many of you had fairly free-roaming childhoods uh, where you had free range of the neighbourhood for many days at a time during your school holidays, for example. The world is a different place than it used to be and obviously that's that's not necessarily possible or practical that we will ever get back to that point with our children and that's not a bad thing. Our kids are growing up in a time where there's other benefits that they'll experience that we didn't have the chance to experience. But I think part of that is the loss of the inherent messaging in that freedom, which was that the world was a mostly safe place and that we were capable and competent uh, of looking after ourselves and tackling tricky situations. So I do wonder whether that relative lack of freedom that our children experience has a role to play as a result of that Uh, lack of messaging these days. I also wonder whether the relative lack of downtime that our kids experience plays a role. Downtime is really important for our kids just as it is for us. It helps our children to uh, have their physiological systems sort of restored to a healthy baseline. But these days children are often overscheduled. And I understand that as a parent myself. I understand that we often want our children to be great at sport or music or art or whatever it might be, but our kids need downtime and they're at risk of burnout if we don't provide that. These days, children too often have what might have otherwise been downtime filled with screen time, which again deprives children of that opportunity to have their physiological systems restored to that healthy baseline. And I think that does have a role to play. And similarly, I think we as parents also have the same difficulties. We as parents have less downtime than our predecessors. We tend to be more stressed, more distracted, more engaged with social media updates through the evening or responding to work emails at night where these weren't problems that our parents faced. And I think because we tend to be more stressed and distracted as a generation of parents, this can really set the tone for our families. And I certainly wonder whether that has a role to play as well. And finally, I think it's a good thing that we're more aware of anxiety in our children. And that that may well be one of the reasons why we're picking it up more in our children, simply because we have a greater awareness that it exists in children. So there are children that may have had anxiety go unrecognised in the past, whereas that might not be the case now. And that's certainly a good thing because we know that early help is, is beneficial for children. I'm often asked by parents about when anxiety becomes a problem. So when to worry about their children's worry. And when I think about anxiety, I often think about an iceberg broken into three sections. So as we go further up the iceberg, the number of children go down as the severity of their anxiety increases. So looking at those three parts, 
at the base of the iceberg, we have all children. All children will experience anxiety from time to time, just as all adults do. It's a universal human experience. The themes about which they become anxious will obviously vary depending on the child's age and circumstances. So particularly young ones will often worry about being away from us, particularly if they're starting in childcare settings for the first time. As children get older and are exposed to a broader range of experiences, the themes about which they can become anxious becomes broader too. So they might become anxious about school camps or performances, exams or friendship situations. In the middle section of the iceberg, which is smaller, there will be fewer children who are affected by more problematic anxiety. Now this anxiety is more problematic because it either occurs in the wrong amounts or in the wrong situations. And we'll go and talk about that in a little bit more detail soon. But essentially this type of more problematic anxiety can create greater stress, greater upsets, uh, and the tendency for children to try to avoid various situations. At the tip of the iceberg, we have those few children, the minority of children who experience anxiety quite severely. And what we see in children is that this tends to fall into definable categories that we know clinically as anxiety disorders. Now, there are a few of these that do occur commonly in children. So I'll just run through these briefly so that parents and educators have an idea about what to look for in children. Firstly, separation anxiety disorder. Now this differs from normal separation anxiety that young children experience. It tends to occur later, affecting commonly say seven to eight year olds, tends to be a lot more intense uh, and certainly tends to impair children's functioning. Now the theme obviously is the fear of being separated from one's parents or caregiver. So children who experience separation anxiety can follow their parents around the house, they can be reluctant to sleep in their own bed at night, and they can have nightmares about being permanently separated from a parent. So for example, nightmares about kidnappings or car accidents or things like that that will permanently separate them from their parent or caregiver. Often children with separation anxiety disorder also experience physical ailments as part of their anxiety. So they might complain of headaches or tummy aches or not feeling like eating, things like that, which affect them physically as well. Secondly, we have children with a specific phobia. Now these are specific objects or situations that are particularly terrifying to children, despite the fact that they pose no real or very little threat. So things like a fear of dogs would be quite common in children or a fear of thunderstorms or fear of vomiting, uh, things like that that relate to a specific instance. Now in contrast, some children have what we call generalised anxiety disorder. These children worry about anything and everything from friendship situations to tragic world events and everything in between. Now these children often complain of physical symptoms as well. They're often worried day in, day out and often complain of physical upsets that go along with that as well. There's another type of anxiety disorder that's really helpful to know about in children because it's often misportrayed in the media and that's obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Now obsessive compulsive disorder is made up of two parts. Firstly, the obsessions and secondly, the compulsions. Now the obsessions are random intrusive thoughts that are very unlike what you would otherwise be thinking that can pop into your head at random times and be really distressing. So examples for children are that they've said a bad word or that they've done the wrong thing or even that the house is on fire or that a loved one is gonna die. Now obviously these, these thoughts are really upsetting for children which is where the compulsions come in. And compulsions are behaviours or rituals that children feel compelled to do in order to neutralise that upsetting thought. So things like tapping or checking things, uh, moving their body in a particular way, 
um, counting and other rituals that children might experience. Now, the really upsetting thing about OCD is that the average time from symptoms to presentation is seven years. And no one should ever have to struggle or suffer with a condition that's treatable for seven years or any length of time. So I mention it because it, if parents or educators know of a child who's experiencing that, it's really important that they seek help and seek help early. The other really common anxiety disorder that occurs in children is social anxiety disorder. And these are situations in which children find themselves to be the centre of attention. So either in social situations or performance situations in which they fear that they will either embarrass themselves or be judged harshly in some way. And this does occur in young children, albeit increasing as children get older. Now, there are other anxiety disorders that occur in children too, PTSD and panic disorder, um, although it's helpful to have an understanding of which ones occur most commonly in early childhood. Now, the threshold which is required to be met before these are considered an anxiety disorder is when the level of anxiety either causes clinically significant distress or impairs a child's functioning. So they're the two criteria for being an anxiety disorder. But there's no reason for parents to wait until that threshold is met before they take a child to seek help. Anxiety management skills are best learnt by all children. We all experience anxiety from time to time and this starts in childhood. So it makes sense to me that we would teach children these skills as early as possible. I'm often asked when is the best time for parents to seek professional help and really the answer to that is whenever a parent feels they need to. If a parent doesn't feel equipped for whatever reason to help guide children through those situations or to help manage their anxiety effectively for whatever reason, it makes sense to seek help from a professional who can help them. And there's loads of professionals who would be willing and able to help children and their families, myself included. There are lots of face-to-face -face and online resources which are really helpful for parents when teaching them how to guide their children through various situations that they might find anxiety provoking, my own included. Sometimes I meet with parents who are worried about taking their child to see someone professionally for anxiety uh, or for any other reason, but they needn't be worried. I always think if we teach kids to seek help when they're finding life to be overwhelming, that's actually a really healthy message that they can then take through life. And particularly as they get through those most di more difficult teenage years and years in young adulthood, it's a really healthy thing to know that you can go and reach out for help if you're feeling overwhelmed. When we teach children stress management skills and anxiety management strategies, we're teaching them strategies that they can carry with them through life. And I always think, why wouldn't you wanna give kids a head start on learning strategies that set them up for success, not only in childhood, but all throughout their adult lives? Okay, has anyone got any questions? Um, I'm just wondering about separation anxiety, but in this case for younger children, um, I know a little person who gets really, really upset when she's separated from her main person and we've tried everything so we'll explain to her ahead of time mum's going and here's what you'll be doing and so she knows exactly so it's um what's the word for that when you're you, there's no unknowns and mm -hmm. then she'll be coming back but most of the time she'll get as soon as you mentioned to her mum's going she'll get really distressed yeah. um and she is really young so I know that's normal but are there any other coping strategies you can use in those situations? Yep. Um, a couple of main ones. The main thing is to always make sure that children when they're in that situation 
are handed over to someone who essentially picks off picks up where the parent leaves off. Um, so by that I mean um, handing over to a person rather than activity. So often, say for example, in uh, at childcare drop-offs. Parents will think that a child needs to be engaged with an activity when they leave, but it's actually more important that they have connected with their next go-to person, their educator. Uh, so making sure that you hand, hand over to a person rather than an activity or to a table or a task. And then when you provide that connection and empathic understanding as a parent and say, I understand your wish, I didn't have to leave. I'll be back this afternoon. I'll give you a cuddle now. And then I'll hand you over to your teacher, for example, uh, who can give you a cuddle and stick with you till you're feeling better then it's the educator's role or whomever might be picking up um, thereafter to essentially pick up and say and, and take the child and continue to, to meet that need for comfort until it's no longer required. Uh, so the educator or the other significant adult would say, I understand you wish mummy didn't have to leave, I understand. You can stick with me until you're feeling better. Uh, so there's that consistency in how that need for comfort is met across both the person leaving and the person stepping in. And the second thing to mention is, is to allow children opportunities to practice. When they are feeling playful and connected with you and they're wired to learn, that's when you can practice these situations. And particularly role play practice with little children can be really helpful in these situations. Actually practicing goodbyes, which I've done with my own children before and saying, okay, so when I leave, this is how we're gonna do it. We'll give you a cuddle. We'll say our goodbyes and then and then you can have a cuddle with whoever it is that you're being left with. Let's actually have a practice because when children are wired to learn and they have opportunities to practice, then they're more likely to be successful when that situation you know, ne next comes around. Is that where distraction doesn't actually work in those situations? Yeah. I mean, distraction can mean a couple, it can mean different things to different people. So if you're saying, okay, you're upset, check out the plane going past, I'm about to leg it, that's, that's not helpful for children. That's, that's just going to invoke panic every time you even look like you might be about to leave and they feel like they need to monitor you all the time to make sure you don't do that point and dash thing again. Um, distraction, if you're moving a child on to an activity that you need to move on to, uh, is entirely reasonable as long as you're first providing that connection empathy. So if you say, I understand you're still feeling sad and you want to stick with me, that's fine, but I need to go and check, check on your friend over there who's fallen down. So let's stick together and we can both check on your friend. So moving along is fine, provided you first meet that need for connection and empathy that children really need when they're, when they're distressed in that situation. What's sort of the top general advice that you'd give someone around stress management with their children for young younger children so I've got a two-year-old but sort of around that sort of age yep. how do you uh, yeah what's the top advice and then where would you go to find out more about that so in terms of parents the the parent being stressed or the child being stressed so uh, you mentioned stress management techniques so what's your sort of your the I don't know, go-to kind of stress management techniques that you would uh, tell people about and then how would I find out more about that sort of thing and other techniques? Yeah, so stress is really helpful for children to experience provided it's manageable for their developmental age and provided you're available as their sort of buffer to be able to help them to manage that. So children throughout, you know, every day are experiencing stress, stressful situations. So even negotiating bedtime or falling over in the playground or having a toy snatched off them at playgroup, all those situations can be stressful for a child. 
having to be told that they need to wear a hat outside when they hate wearing hats. All those situations can be stressful to an extent for a child, but they're all really good learning for children. Um, they learn that certain things happen that might not always go their way and they learn that they have to manage those situations, um, even when those situations are really disappointing for them. So the main thing is to encourage parents not to dismiss their children in those situations, but to provide that connection and empathy. Say, I know you're feeling disappointed that we couldn't buy that toy in the shop. I know, I wish I could buy everything in the shops too. Um, providing that connection, empathy, and putting words to their experience so that ultimately children can put their own experience into words uh, is really helpful. And allowing children to feel disappointed, to feel challenged, to feel bored, um, because they are gaining practice and valuable stress management skills as they tolerate those situations that will obviously bode them well for life. Um, and so that certainly ties into the topic of resilience. Uh, which we cover in, your, in the other Mat Time episode, um, but which I also cover in a lot of detail in my A Dose of Awesomeness advice packs, which parents are welcome to access online anytime. Um, I have a question. You talked about two other types of anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress and yeah. panic disorder. What's panic disorder? So panic disorder is a disorder that tends to occur more often in older children and adults, which is why I didn't go into it in too much detail in this episode. Uh, it's an It's an disorder in which the anxiety is felt very physically so your heart rate speeds up your your breathing rate speeds up you can feel lightheaded or dizzy and often people have an experience that they're either going to die um, or they're going mad that's often how it's perceived because these things it, it can just sort of come on quite unexpectedly and can be really really frightening for someone now the problem is once you've had one panic episode that comes out of the blue it increases your baseline level of anxiety because you're now very worried about having another one uh, and because you've got that raised baseline level of anxiety you're more likely to be tipped over into another panic state uh, so it's really about teaching children uh, or, or older children or adults how to manage their anxiety as soon as it begins so that you can sort of quell those episodes early and eventually break that cycle. With um, some of the disorders like OCD and one where you said you get physically sick, are, are they, do they have hereditary? Do you just have those or is it something that's been caused from a parenting style or an experience? It's a great question. So anxiety in general is considered, in terms of that problematic anxiety we talked about, or those anxiety disorders, uh, tend to be multifactorial. And, and, you know, sometimes we can't point a finger at one particular thing and say it was that. There's certainly a genetic component. So as an adult, if you have an anxiety disorder, then your kids would carry a greater genetic risk of having an anxiety disorder, same as with many illnesses and conditions in life. Um, for some children, temperament plays a role. So we know that some children are those sort of highly sensitive souls just by virtue of their temperament. It's just who, who, the, the qualities of their personality that they've been born with. So those highly sensitive souls who tend to think more deeply about situations and worry about all the what ifs, um, that can be a trait that's been with them since they were born. And those kids are more prone to worry. Uh, for other children, they might have experienced really traumatic events in their life, which has made them more prone to stress. Uh, and for other children, there's a learned component as well. So, for example, if you were to jump so high you hit your, hit your head on the ceiling every time you saw a spider, then children will naturally learn that spiders are incredibly dangerous and, and fear-inducing and that they should respond similarly. So there can be a, a learned component to anxiety too which is one of the reasons why I guess we have to, an, another motivation to, I guess, get on top of our own anxiety as parents, both for ourselves, but also for our children. 
You mentioned having uh, the importance of having scheduled or sort of regular downtime for yeah. children. Can you talk about what that looks like? Sort of, you know, you said there's good downtime and then bad downtime. You, yeah. you mentioned screen time is often yeah. replaced. What, what, what yeah. does good downtime look like? I think it's just providing the kids with opportunities to be bored and come up with their own activities. Um, I think often we tend as parents now to fill the gaps, you know, those gaps that might have otherwise been used by the child to do anything really, um, thumb through a book or gaze at clouds or anything or just be bored. We, we can, there's a tendency to sort of fill the gaps with screen time and allow a child to sort of be passive consumers of, of screen time whereas that's not the best use of their time. Um, children need practice being bored. My, my kids actually very rarely let me know that they're bored and the couple of times that they have, I've just explained that boredom is just those brief moments before you come up with another good idea or something to do. But teaching children that they are very capable of coming up with a game or coming up with an activity or wanting to explore in the garden, whatever it might be, they can come up with their own activities um, that provides them with more than passive screen time could ever offer. Mm, My kids of, make so much out of boxes. It's always boxes are often there. Yeah. I was sort of wondering what, like, in terms of, because Cora has a lot of down downtime. Yeah. Like, not, uh, Angel B, you know, baking or something like that, yeah. and Cora's just playing around. Yeah. But she's got heaps of stuff. Yeah. So it's kind of, I was just wondering, like. Oh, no, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you as a parent not feeling all their time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, if they're having, if they're playing or they come up with an idea to play I Spy with you while you're cooking or anything, anything that's led by them, that's downtime. Anything that's led by you in terms of booking into back-to-back -back swimming, dance, soccer yeah. lessons, yeah. and then filling the gaps with screens, that's just, it's just, there's just no downtime for kids yeah. then if they haven't been able to come up with their own activities. Do you have any idea of sort of what sort of, I mean, if this is a very vague and hard question to answer, but... Uh, a rough like kind of like what does balance look like to you I, I guess for you yeah. specifically might be easier to answer so yeah rough schedule sort of yeah you know what it often depends on your child as well some kids can manage more than others some kids are just by virtue of their temperament more physically active kids and are driven to do more mm. um, so my children are all actually quite different in how much they want to do mm. and how much they can cope with and, you know, that's a tricky thing of being a parent is balancing the right amount for each of your very different children. Mm. Um, but look, my children do one after school activity a, a week and the rest of the time they've chosen to have to be able to come home and play mm. or, or read or just chill out. Um, and that works for that works for our family. But it'll be different for, you know, for, for all different temperament types and different families. Mm. Cool. Thanks. Uh, how do you know what a real anxiety is versus maybe just not wanting to go to bed? And, or, yeah. You know, or uh, just, you know, just can't find the right teddy, or, you know? Yeah. yeah. So what do you mean in terms of how, why, why would you call it anxiety versus I mean, something else? You know, or? you know, if a child says they don't want to turn the lights off because it's getting dark. Oh, okay. Um, but maybe they just don't want to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. How do you know when they're, you know, sort of, yeah. When does that actual anxiety become attention seeking? Mm -hmm. Just as an attention seeking strategy? 
I think um, it depends if it's sustained or not. So if it's, you know, if it's a day where you've worked a long day and you come home and your child is suddenly thinking of a thousand and one reasons why you shouldn't leave them in their room at night because they want to keep connecting with you. And, and clinically, we, in our conversations with parents, we would talk about connection seeking rather than attention seeking because it's, it's more helpful to think about that because it's, it's what it is. They just want to connect with you. Um, and they'll think of uh, 101 reasons, you know, ways to be able to do that. Um, you know, I guess you've got to consider the context, whether this re is a repeated theme or uh, whether it's a sustained thing. Um, and again, I guess if, you're, if you are confused about it, then picking those times which are unrelated to the event, when you're having a nice play, throwing a ball together the next day, and that's when you can have those conversations saying, hey, you know, last night when you said you were, you know, scared of the dark, were you really scared of the dark or do you just want me to hang out with you a little bit longer? That's the times you can have those conversations unrelated to the event where you're probably more likely to get a more helpful response perhaps um, that can then guide you next time. Yeah. You talk about, you know, role playing um, a good way to help overcome something what if they're 11 <laughs> yeah. yeah you can it depends <laughs> on your child yeah it depends or at 11 you can just talk to them about it yeah. um and say gosh it sounds like a pretty situation a pretty tricky situation that you're in with your friend you know what options have you come up with do you actually want to have a practice like what would if if i said this to you what could you say you can do it without the whole okay let's now get up and role play you could just play it out in conversation if it's something that I feel should have been dealt with years ago and it's dragged out yep. and now it seems ridiculous because yep. it's not, it's about food. Yeah. So I think it's like a phobia now. Yep. So their techniques should deal with that. Yeah. Because it obviously is an anxiety. Yeah. I think in those situations where they've become a bit of a habit and heels have been dug in and it feels hard to break those habits. One of the most helpful things I've found with children is to really align, make sure you align with your child against the problem. So what you don't want to do is to line yourself up against your child because then you have those power struggles that never go well for anyone. So in those situations, it's much better to be able to say, gosh, you and I find mealtimes pretty tricky. And, and we both wish we didn't. So you're aligning with your child. We both wish we didn't because it's, you know, we love hanging out together and it's actually a really nice time to spend time together. So what can we do to make mealtimes better? What are your ideas? Because I've got a couple of ideas. I'm just wondering if you have as well. And maybe we'll both work on those to make mealtimes a bit better. Um, but again, it's probably better to do that, have that conversation, not at mealtime at another time when you're feeling connected and, you know, on the same page. And it might even be lying in bed, um, you know, jumping in beside them at, in, in bed one night and say, hey, I just want to have a talk to you about something. Um, because you and I, we don't, you know, we're often apart from each other during the day. I love the time we spend together. I know you and I both want it to be as good as it can be. So this is something I was thinking of that we could both work on. What are your ideas? And really aligning with your child against the problem. Yeah. Good answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. In terms of anxiety, I mean, there are no different things can induce anxiety. And I know, yeah. like, my daughter at the moment, she's got two um, new siblings. Yeah. Um, so that's created quite a bit of anxiety for her. Yeah. How easy is it for her, though, that to say, does it say situation specific or is it likely to generalise? So, can you give me an example of how that's played out in terms of anxiety? 
she'll have moments where she'll feel like she's not part of the family. Um, she's had dreams about being kidnapped or being taken by another family member yeah. um, to live at their house. Yeah. And that she's, she'll wake up and she'll be quite upset because she's like, but I don't want to live there, I want to live with you. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're sure, and we're like, you know, that's not going to happen with us, you're here as long as you want to be. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's something that's very much started yeah. since the siblings yeah. have come home. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so our, I guess our concern with it is like, how likely is that to then start to induce anxiety in other situations yeah. that aren't specifically related to that? Yeah. How old's your daughter? She's four. Four. I think, you know, hearing, hearing that, I guess the thing that I would think about is that your little one's feeling like she's becoming less and less part of your family. I would wonder whether that's, you know, obviously that's not the case and she's well loved, but that might be playing in her mind is that fam her family is now irrevocably changed and that she's not feeling as much a part of it as she once was perhaps. Um, so I guess if that's the case, I'd be less inclined to worry that that anxiety is going to generalise and more inclined to think about it as a period of adjustment in which your main role is really to connect with her and bring her in as much as you can so that she feels like even though her family has changed, she's still very much part of it. Um, so taking opportunities to connect with her, to touch her, you know, even at, at, at breakfast, you know, reaching, if you're reaching across her to get the breakfast cereal, popping a hand on her back. Um, each time you go past her, kiss her on the head. Um, say things like, gee, our, fam you know, our family is so much better with you in it. We love you being part of our family. Or aren't your little brothers or sisters lucky to have you as a big sister? Um, taking those moments to connect with her, uh, really highlighting all the wonderful qualities that she brings, not sort of external stuff like, gee, I like your shoes, but isn't it wonderful that you're so kind and, gee, you're funny um, or you're so imaginative, whatever it might be. Really take time to delight in her, let your face light up, your eyes light up when she walks in so that she feels very much drawn in and part of your, albeit now, different family. Um, and take the time too to foster that bond between her and her siblings. Um, one of the ways I did this with my children when each of, you know, there's a new addition, each time there's a new addition, um, was having my older children do smiling practice with my babies because we all know it takes a while for babies to learn how to smile. So one of the things I would say to um, my older child was, hey, can I get your help? Um, because babies don't actually know how to smile. It's one of the many things we have to teach them and you're a really good teacher and you've got a beautiful smile. So can you sit here with me and actually do some smiling practice with, with our baby? Um, and it was a really nice way for the sibling and, and the baby to connect. And inevitably it's rewarded because the baby pretty soon after starts smiling back at them and it's very reinforcing for that bond. But just bring in, I guess you've got to think creatively about lots of different ways you can bring her in um, so that it's not a situation where um, you're taking her away and leaving mum with babies or whatever it might be, albeit to you know give babies and mum a break. Think about things you can do together or to bring her in uh, as often as you can. Yeah, it's a tricky time. How old are your babies? Uh, they will be um, coming up just past six months. Yeah, okay. Well, coming up six months. Yeah. Months. Yeah, so just making sure she's in as much as possible. That delight's really important. And they, they say, so delight's communicated non-verbally and is the way your eyes light up and your face lights up and your body turns towards someone when you're with them. Um, it's, it's thought to be the basis of self-esteem development for children. 
So if she's, you know, even as she gets up in the morning, if she's delighted in, that's a beautiful way to, for her to start coming into the room and seeing that her parents absolutely still delight in her being there, even though, you know, family's a little different now. Um, even though you will have had zero sleep and it's hard to delight in anything other than coffee. <laughs> but you know what I mean, just, just taking, making sure those little moments of connection uh, with your daughter happen because they really add up to a lot. No, I think there's value in that. There's value for children to understand that it's normal to feel anxious about things like that. That is absolutely normal to feel anxious about earthquakes if you've just been through one and it was scary. And it's helpful for them to know that even the grown-ups are a bit scared. But don't just leave it at that. It would be more helpful to say, gosh, I found that earthquake scary too, did you? Yeah, no, we both did. In fact, everyone did. It's normal to feel a bit scared in an earthquake. But you know what? We're all okay. Um, you know, provide some sort of context and story around it and provide some personal examples of what you did to help yourself manage your anxiety, if you can. Um, or if, if not you, then draw on someone else's experience. Um, say, I know, um, you know, I know someone who, who went to talk to someone about it um, and realised that everyone just felt, felt worried, but it passed. You know, lots, lots of scary things happen in life, but it passes. Um, you might find, if it's too much to have that conversation, you might find bringing in storybooks about it are a more helpful way to sort of discuss that topic without drawing on your own experience if you're finding that too challenging. Um, and there are lots of storybooks written about anxiety or various situations that children might find anxious that might be helpful in that situation, yeah. You've been listening to the Early Learning Podcast, brought to you by StoryPark. Don't forget, if you'd like to get in touch, email us at media at storypark.com. <laughs>